Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Deeply Technical series. Codish, this is Robert Blumen. I'm a DevOps engineer at Salesforce. I have with me Luke Kaisel. Luke is a software engineer at HashiCorp, where he works on console product. Luke, welcome to Codish. Thanks for having me. Luke and I are going to be talking about service mesh. I think it will be easiest to understand service mesh if we talk about the history of it. How did service mesh emerge? What came before? And how did service mesh emerge from what came before? So what we had when we start kind of way before we have like monolith and you have this this monolith to, to microservices move. And so before when we had the monolith, what maybe the early rumorings of service mesh were load balancers and, and firewalls and, you know, basically you're routing infrastructure within whatever data center you were running in. And so like, I think like the earliest concept of service mesh is probably around like how, how does the packets route from your customers into your app and then back out to the customers. Uh, but there doesn't really like the idea of a service mesh uh, back then. And then once we started moving towards microservices where you had a lot of services kind of behind your main firewall communicating with one another, you started to run into kind of a lot more complexity around that where you don't want to be configuring these like these load balancers. Um, you want to have more control over where your packets are flowing. You have more need to change where your packets are flowing as you move to microservices because uh, you have more complexity, more apps moving. You're migrating to different platforms. And so you find yourself being like, okay, I want to direct where this traffic is going uh, more often. And so that's where you started to see like the first rumorings uh, of uh, the idea of a service mesh where you have these services and they're calling each other. And now you need to do things like you need to set up retries, for example, uh, where if the service call fails, you want to do it again. And so uh, we started to see some solutions around that. Uh, Netflix had a, a couple libraries out where you would embed like a library in your application. And that would automatically uh, do a retry uh, if your request failed. And it might do something complex where it does like an exponential retry or something like that. As my, we moved from monolith to microservices and your routing architecture got more complex, you started to see solutions that try to solve this complexity. I think like really service mesh got, got its, its real start uh, with Kubernetes, with container scheduling. And again, this is just coming out of now you have the ability to have much more complex topologies, much more complex architectures and, and services, and they're running all over the place now. And so you needed to have uh, some tools that would help you manage the routing uh, between all those different services. Also with Kubernetes, you had, and Docker containers in general, you had the ability to, to be a more polyglot organization where you could run uh, many different services in many different languages. And so going the route of where you, the Netflix route where you had a library where you would embed, like you'd actually include a library with all your applications and they would control the routing and the retries and the, all the other stuff. That was getting a lot harder right? Because you're using different languages. So now you need to have like a, a, a library that works for all the different languages. And so what we started to see was uh, the idea of where we have this proxy, this sidecar, this process that's running out of your application. So it's not embedded in the same library. So it can be written in a different language. And that what it does, is it sits in front of your application and all the traffic that's going into your application goes through that proxy. 
and all the traffic that's going out of your application goes through that proxy. And this is kind of the, the modern where service mesh has evolved to. And what that gives you now is you have these proxies running in front of all of your applications. Now you can program what those proxies do uh, from a centralized control plane. So you can manage retries from a centralized control plane. You don't have to you know, write a library. To, it gets embedded into all these applications. You don't need to uh, redeploy all the applications when you want to update the library. And so that's kind of the, the journey we've taken to, to service mesh. And, and, and like there's a little bit instances of it kind of being existing in architecture throughout kind of all the different stages. But I think that's where we're at now, which is um, when folks think of like what a service mesh is, it's basically uh, proxies running in front of all your applications where you can, you can program those proxies from a centralized control plane. If I could summarize what I take away from that, when you have a microservice architecture, the need is service A has to talk to service B, and we're talking about RPC communication here. And people realized over time there's a lot of commonality in how service A talks to service B and how service B talks to service C and so on. And naturally, you want to abstract that commonality into some kind of unitary abstraction, which started out being a library, but the reason you mentioned about everybody's not using the same language. It made sense to factor that out into a standalone process. Yeah. And then you get now service A talks to a sidecar proxy of A. Yes. Which talks to a sidecar proxy of service B, which talks to service B. Correct. So what is the, how, what is the communication from A to the sidecar proxy of A look like? So when we think about it, like in a container, this will be a, a local host communication. So it's going to be running in the same like networking stack uh, the proxy will be. So that's a really, really quick like hop over there, probably on the order of microseconds. And then the proxy will be listening on, on a defined port. Uh, the request will go into that proxy. And then based on the rules that you've set up in your control plane, which we'll address later, uh, that packet will get routed to service B. But it might be, you know, if if it was a it's the second request, for example, the proxy is going to remember that that was the second request and the first one failed, and so it might may might make a delay and retry it in like two seconds or or something like that. So the communication that's how it works between the proxy and, and service A. That sounds really great because if it's local host, I don't have to worry about DNS or packet loss or a ton of other things that could go wrong when I go over a real network. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you're still going to have to worry about that between the the real network, between service B's proxy and service A's proxy. Um, but the application doesn't really need to know about that. It can just be a very simple a call. It doesn't even have to use uh, SSL or anything, right? It could just be like HTTP plain text. And then the proxy could upgrade that to being a TLS call or whatever. So that is kind of the, the idea is where we were starting to build a lot of complex uh, logic into the application around firewall policies around authorization around um, retries and all these other things and what we were finding was that you everyone was trying to write this this logic over and over again it was it was kind of unnecessary because the whole point of the application is just to focus on the business logic and so the idea is like okay well let's just load all this all this stuff into the proxy right at once control it from one place pretty much every programming language is going to have an http client mm -hmm. so if you're talking to the onboard sidecar with HTTP, then that is very simple to exactly. implement. Exactly. All right. Now let's look at that next top. You're going from the sidecar of microservice A to the sidecar of microservice B. And that's where a lot of the complexity is. And you've talked about 
You've got possibly retries, load balancing. What are some other complexities that are handled in that layer? You could also handle authorization. So is service A allowed to talk to service B? And this is usually done uh, via mutual TLS, uh, where the the request is uh, encrypted um, with a certificate that identifies like that service A is making the call. And then when it lands over on service B, it can cryptographically verify that this is indeed service A that is, is calling me. So that's a, a real a really big one is the idea of like these zero trust networks where even though you're within your own data center um, and you're making these calls between service A and service B, someone might be listening to your call. And so we're going to make this a request over SSL. So that's a big use case. Uh, you talked about uh, load balancing and retries. Another big use case is, is a migration. So with the world of Kubernetes, you know, what if I want to move this app to a completely different location rather than having to reconfigure all my applications to have that new URL or whatever, I can just make a, a single, the applications don't need to change. I just make a change in my control plane and we're actually pointing this traffic completely somewhere else. Another use case is, is failover, uh, maybe even between data centers. So, you, you know, you retry three times to this application in your local data center, but that's not working, that's failing. And so now what if we actually retry to our application running in a completely different data center uh, because we think that one might be up. Uh, there's more and more, I mean, kind of like myriad use cases, uh, traffic mirroring where the idea is uh, you send the same traffic and you split it, you send the same traffic to two different applications. So this could be something maybe like a test application and an application that's a new application, a canary or whatever. And you were discarding all the requests, but you just want to get like real production traffic in there. Chaos engineering is another use case where you actually inject faults. So you make it so that request fails for a certain percentage of the time. So you can see how your application responds to failure. I want to focus a little bit on the MTLS. That implies that this proxy has a capability of storing all the certificates it needs, both client and server certificates and presenting the right certificate if it's a client. Mm -hmm. So is certificate management one of the capabilities of the sidecar? Yes. Usually the sidecar is what we call like the data plane. And so it doesn't usually have a lot of uh, complex logic in it. And basically it just gets configured by the control plane. So the control plane will be the one that would be sending down the certificates to the proxy. So they'd be living in like in memory on the proxy, but they'd be rotated via an API call or something like that. Um, so the proxy, it does have them because it needs them to be able to make those requests, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's managing them. It's just kind of reading them dumbly from the control plane. Okay. I am going to come back to control plane, but mm -hmm. I want to focus on, uh, bit more on the details of the proxy to proxy. Is HTTP2 the usual choice? Between the proxies? Yes, between the proxies. Yes. Why is that? Well, I'm not sure if it's able to upgrade like an HTTP 1.1 request to HTTP 2. But if, if it can speak over HTTP 2, that is a lot better because... I mean, it's just a lot more efficient protocol for HTTP requests. So it can it can pipeline the requests across like two connections. You can send multiple requests and you don't have this idea, this problem that HTTP 1.1 had around like head of line blocking where like you couldn't process half the request because you needed to hear from another part of the request. So I think you just, you, you can pack a lot more bytes on the wire uh, a lot more efficiently. And so that's why it would be, um, it'd be preferred between the proxies. Where, where you were going when you're talking about all the different things it does. One of the ones I have in my list that you maybe kind of touched on, or maybe not as a circuit breaker pattern, mm -hmm. you describe what that does and, and uh, how that helps. Yeah. That's the idea where we see this all the time with, with distributed systems where 
you say your application is running a bit slow. So maybe a request to that application times out. Well, now we have, you know, our magic service mesh. So all we need to do is just retry that request, you know, let's retry it immediately. And so what actually often happens is that now that application that starts to be a little bit slow is suddenly getting hammered with three times as many requests. And so it's slowing down even more. And so eventually what actually needs to happen for that application to recover is just it needs all the requests need to stop to that application. And so this is the idea of, of a circuit breaker where um, the proxy recognizes that, okay, well, this application, it hasn't responded to any requests for like the last couple of seconds. Let's just stop sending all requests to it. So the circuit is, is broken and we stop sending requests to it. Now, the application that is calling, it has to deal now with the fact that the circuit's broken. And so instead of maybe waiting for a timeout and having its request fail, it just fails immediately. So it doesn't really, you still have to deal with that failure from that one application, but what it does is it, it gives potentially time for the other application to recover. So it's not getting hit with so many requests. And also it'll um, kind of show up on your monitoring, like, hey, service A has a circuit breaker open now. Um, and so it can't talk to service B. And so that's a little bit easier to, to see on your monitoring as well. Another item on my list is a publication of metrics about the traffic. Say a bit more about that. You know, one thing in a, in a big distributed system is it's really hard and complex to know what's happening. And so one of the, the ways we combat that is is through metrics. So I have a bunch of graphs that show me that service A is calling service B at a certain request per second and a certain number of requests are failing. So how do we get those metrics? So be, before a service mesh, the what you would do is you would have a library or you custom build something where on every request, you'd have some code that says like increment the counter that I'm making this request and increment a, a gauge about our, how, how, how long the request was, how long it took and inter, incre increment another counter if that request failed. And so again, you were kind of writing all this code in your application. Um, and so just like uh, with the routing logic, what we saw a lot of benefits there is like, okay, let's push all that out into the proxy and have the proxy uh, be the one that's emitting all these metrics. So now these proxies now contain all those metrics around uh, requests from service A to service B, how many there were, how fast they how fast they uh, they were completed, the latency, um, any errors, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so you don't need to write all those, those stats in your application. Again, the application can just be dumb and it can just send those requests and not worry about recording those statistics. And so now all these proxies are emitting um, these metrics and they're emitting them all, all the same across all the proxies, even though the different like... Uh, uh, languages of the applications behind them, they might be different. And so now you can aggregate all these statistics in, in your in your dashboards and see them kind of across your infrastructure, how all the service-to-service -service calls are going and identify any issues like that. It simplifies gathering metrics because some things are easier to count when you've centralized the logic. Yes, absolutely. And the way to retrieve them is the same. You can imagine like at my old job, we, we had you know, stats D and graphite were kind of the ways you would emit metrics, but uh, Prometheus is now a lot more popular. So you can imagine like you would have to, in the old days, you would have to, you know, upgrade those applications and literally change the library inside them to say, okay, now I want you to emit uh, Prometheus metrics. Uh, but with the proxies, uh, you don't have to do any of those, those code changes. Uh, you can just make changes to, um, at the control plane layer. You did mention load balancing and you talked about an earlier approach where you would have a load balancer that is a component of your network or uh, maybe a proxy layer mm -hmm. that's on the server side. There's a centralized point where requests go and then it distributes them out. Mm -hmm. 
there is a, a subtle point here, which is load balancing will now be on the client side in a service mesh. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Previously, you could either have every application has a, a load balancer that lives outside of it. And anyone who wants to talk to that application, uh, they send a request directly to the load balancer. And then that load balancer is now going to be um, you know, load balancing between those applications. Uh, but now in that world, that load balancer is gone. And so that application, its proxy is essentially that load balancer. So it's moved into the client. Like you said, it's client-side load balancing, um, which saves you a hop because you don't have to hit the load balancer and then the application behind it. And you can also do a lot more complex load balancing at that level. So in the old world where service A called service B through service B's load balancer, that load balancer lived in one place. Even though service B, maybe its actual backing instances were living maybe in, if we think about um, something like uh, different availability zones, they might be living in different availability zones. So now service A, when it calls service B, it can actually notice with it, when it's doing its load balancing that, hey, I get a lot faster um, responses from this one instance of service B. I don't know why, um, but I'm just going to keep calling that one because I get a lot, a lot faster responses. Reality, what may be happening is they're both living in the same availability zone. And so the network's a lot faster between the two of them. So you do get some benefits when you move that, that load balancing to the client side. I could see one advantage of the load balancer being closer to the server is the load balancer would know about something about all the traffic coming into service B. Let's suppose we had services X, Y, and Z that are all calling service B and they don't necessarily have any ability to coordinate among each other. Is there right. some way the client side load balancing can compensate or adapt so that it's getting served by the most available units on the back end? Yes, absolutely. There's kind of the concept of, of passive and active health checking. So active health checking is the service A is actually like making calls specifically asking, hey, what is the health of service B and all these different uh, instances that I could be calling and then directing its traffic to only the healthy ones or the ones that were responding quicker. And then another idea is the idea of passive load balancing where the requests were going to be going to service B anyway. So rather than making specific health check requests, let's just watch the responses for those requests and kind of record them and notice how fast they're going. And also, you know, if they're getting, if they're getting a lot of like bad responses, like 500s or something and using that data to decide where I actually route to and to prefer routing to the healthiest instance or the one that's responding the fastest. How would service A find out about all the available instances that are able to serve service B? So that's where same kind of question about like the certificates. That's where we go back to the the proxy is, is kind of this this dumb layer that just gets configured by the control plane. And so that logic of what services exist and, and what their IPs are or where they're where they are where they are, that all happens at the control plane. So the control plane, um, if we think about the concept of something like Kubernetes where you have a scheduler, uh, the control plane would be talking to that scheduler and it would be asking, hey, where are all the services? What are what are their IP addresses? If it changes, it, it would the scheduler would be notifying the control plane and saying, "Hey, okay, that that IP has moved over here, or that one doesn't exist anymore." And then the control plane is responsible with configuring the proxies, so pushing or pulling, depending on how it's built, um, that application down to the proxies. And so the, there's a little bit of delay there, obviously. And then it would tell the proxy, "Okay, this service has moved over here. It's got a new IP address, or it doesn't exist anymore." So you mentioned control plane a few times. I've been promising to come back to that. Start off. Let's define what it is, and then we'll drill down more into that? So as a service mesh developer, kind of how, how we think about things is this idea of a data plane and a control plane. 
So the data plane is, in our example of service A to service B, our data plane is the request from service A to its proxy, and then from that proxy to service B's proxy, and then to the actual instance of service B. So it's the data the applications are, are sending to each other through the proxies. And then the control plane is a, like a little thing that sits above all that that's actually configuring those, those proxies um, and how they work. So that's where the control plane is. And so that's where the control plane is basically going to be configuring these proxies, telling them use a certificate or, hey, when they get a request for, for service B, route it to this IP address or this IP address. Um, so that's the concept of the control plane. So control plane then a service or a set of containers that runs on the same network as the data plane? Yeah, typically, if we think about something like a Kubernetes cluster, you'll have your your data plane, which will be your proxies that are running uh, alongside um, your applications. And then the the control plane will be you know a deployment, another application basically that's running in there uh, that's talking to the proxies and it's also talking to the scheduler. And if we're looking at in, in VMs or something, you would say you're using console, you would have uh, the proxies would be living on each of your VMs. And then the control plane would be running kind of on a set of a set, another set of VMs as a, as a new kind of VM application that is talking to the proxies. Roughly how much communication is there between the control plane and the data plane as compared to data plane communication? Like in terms of actual bytes moved, I would, I would imagine that the data plane is going to have way, way more communication uh, between it. The communication from the control plane is what changed basically. So if you had an incredibly dynamic cluster where you had uh, services being registered and deregistered very, very often, then the control plane is going to have to communicate to the proxies saying, hey, this this application is, is moved or whatever. And so maybe if it was incredibly dynamic, that communication could be really large, but it's not going to be communicating that much information. Do you know what I mean? Like it's going to be communicating like the service name and the IP that it has. So in terms of bytes moved around, I, I would imagine that on almost all cases, uh, the data plane is going to have much more, much more traffic because that's real application traffic. People's you know, services sending traffic to one another, and then that can be very large. And what is the communication between the control plane and the data plane? What does that look like? I can speak to console service mesh. It's... Um, it's done using uh, an RPC uh, mechanism. Uh, most service meshes will be using gRPC if they're using an, a proxy technology called Envoy. So that's what console uses. It uses gRPC to talk to Envoy. Uh, I think you've, you've done another episode on gRPC, but for the listeners that haven't listened to that, it's an RPC communication layer framework uh, coming out of Google uh, that allows for very, very quick uh, communication. Um, and also it's it's strongly typed. So between different languages, uh, it's it, you don't have any issues with like JSON decoding, failing or whatever like that. We've talked about how the data plane relies on the control plane for information that it needs to function like certificates and the list of IPs and so on. Uh, mm -hmm. It seems to me there's got to be some kind of a careful bootstrap process where you're not kicking the can down one more <laughs> level. That How does the thing all get bootstrapped up to where the data plane knows where to find the control plane? Or the other way around, is it a pull or a push? So how things typically work is at some point you need to know the location of the control plane. So when the when the proxy starts up, it needs to reach out to some address and be like, hey, where's my configuration coming from, right? And so in something like a scheduler like Kubernetes, where we have this idea where uh, we can actually inject something into the application before it runs, uh, we can intercept, like say I, I'm just scheduling service A, 
uh, we can actually intercept that that scheduling request and say, hey, I actually want you to add in a, a sidecar, uh, add in this to this deployment. So when this uh, application actually runs, it's going to have um, some extra code running alongside it. And at that point, the control plane would be like adding that sidecar in and it would be part of this configuration that it added would be like, here's my address because I know my address because I'm me. <laughs> so that's kind of where that bootstrapping would happen. But it does get tricky is around identity, right? And, and security there. So can any old proxy just join, say, hey, service mesh, I'm a proxy for service A. Well, how does the control plane know that that's, and, oh, and give me my certificates and so I can talk like I'm service A. How does the control plane know that that service, that that, that proxy is actually allowed to, to be a proxy for service A? Um, and so that's where, there's, there's a protocol, um, it's called Spiffy, S-P-I-F-F-E. What that happens is if you're running on VMs, you can use like the, the identity of the VM, maybe in the cloud or whatever to testify like, hey, this is service A. And if you're running in Kubernetes, uh, there's a concept of a service account, uh, which is basically the identity of that service. And so we would, we, we would validate that when that proxy starts up, it would send its like service account information and then they would kind of prove that it's service A. And after that, we, the control plane would be okay with sending the certificates there. I'm, I'm not familiar with Kubernetes, but the way I've seen this problem solved in in many systems is through configuration management or provisioning tools like Terraform that know everything, mm-hmm. all the certificates and the secrets, and are able to inject that into different types of configurations before they start. Yeah. Is that another approach or is that possibly an approach of how it gets into Kubernetes in the first place? Yeah, no, and I apologize for speaking so much about about Kubernetes. That's kind of where, I think that's where we find folks trying the service meshes the uh, first, mostly because it, it's a dynamic environment, and so you can configure things a lot more easily and experiment a lot more easily than on something like VMs, where you are literally uh, provisioning a VM and it takes a little bit longer to deploy it. But yeah, when we when we look at how how it works on on virtual machines, you could have uh, your your Ansible or whatever your your configuration Terraform putting these certificates onto the VM. But what we find is is that we actually want these certificates to be very very dynamic. So we want them to be rotated every uh, you know every day or something like that. And so what we tend to find is we'll provision the certificate that allows you to talk to the control plane, and we'll provision the identity that proves that you are allowed to talk to the control plane. So be it like a special token or something like that that proves you're allowed to talk to the control plane. But from then onwards, uh, once that proxy has that data and it can talk to the control plane and it can testify that it is that service A, for example, then we actually have the certificates being uh, rotated a lot more quickly. And so the control plane will actually be sending those down to the proxy and it'll be living in its memory and it'll be uh, easily rotated. If I understood that, in order to bootstrap, you need a minimal amount of information that proves who you are, and that has to come from outside of yourself. Yeah. And it gets injected by something, then the data plane can use that to authenticate itself to the control plane, and then yeah. it can get more information from the control plane that it needs to do the things it's allowed to do. And uh, if service A said, I want to talk to service B and C, and the control plane doesn't know that service A is allowed to do that, it could deny that request for those certificates. Yeah, the what would usually happen in that case where you have service A, it's not allowed to talk to service C, for example, would be either when it tries to talk through its proxy, its proxy would like refuse that request to continue through to service C. Or what you would see is that the proxy would allow it to reach service C, but then service C would inspect that request 
and it would see that it's from service A and service A isn't allowed to talk to service C based on my rules that I'm getting a push from the control plane. So we kind of see how it all connects. And then at that point, it would refuse the request uh, with like a 400 or something. It's like you could do a certain amount of security monitoring. Absolutely, yeah. With this architecture of detecting entities that are trying to do something they shouldn't be able to do. And this kind of comes back to to the metrics thing where you can imagine in the old days where, you know, you would have to have each application would have to like emit a metric saying like request that wasn't authorized or something like that. But here you could actually have all the proxies emit that same metric and you could kind of track that across your infrastructure and notice uh, maybe some incursion or something happening. So we've mentioned Kubernetes. What are some of the popular open source offerings for either the proxy or the control plane server? So, I mean, I, I will make a, a clarification too there. The, the Kubernetes is, is neither the control plane nor the data plane. It's just a, a platform upon which applications can be run. And then often that's where a service mesh with its data plane and its control plane end up end up being used. Um, but in terms of the, the data plane, there's a very, very popular project uh, that's used for most of the service meshes and it's called Envoy. So this is an open source project out of Lyft, uh, you know, like Uber Lyft. That's what they were using internally for their own kind of homegrown service mesh. And that was that was open sourced. And it's a really, really uh, quick, dynamic proxy that uh, many of the service meshes are using for, for their data plane. Um, specifically, console uses that. Um, Istio uses that. And so and then in terms of control planes, there's Istio and console and Kuma. There's a number of, of, of service meshes. I'm sure I'm, I'm missing some. There's, there's Nginx. And there's also a service mesh uh, called Linkerd. And then Linkerd, for their data plane, they're not actually using Envoy. They're using uh, a proxy that they wrote themselves uh, in Rust. Um, and so they, they're using kind of their own proxy. And, and obviously, they have their own control plane as well. So all of these are roughly adhering to this architecture pattern. What are some significant differences between some of the different tools? One big difference from Linkerd's side is that they wrote their own proxy in, in Rust. So they're not using Envoy. So that lets them kind of expose some capabilities that Envoy doesn't have. And then I think uh, some other differences you look at is if we look at console, many, many of these service meshes are run exclusively in Kubernetes. So you have to run them on the Kubernetes scheduler. And what that comes back to is when we talked about, uh, you asked the question, like, how does the service mesh know where the services are, right? So many of these service meshes are, are tied to Kubernetes. So they are very good at asking, hey, Kubernetes, where are the services? But uh, so console is actually built from before Kubernetes even existed. And so we're our own system for knowing where services are. And so console runs uh, very well on, on VMs and other platforms where there isn't, uh, there's no Kubernetes to ask like, hey, where are all the services? Instead, uh, you know, the services are registered with console itself. So that's a, a big difference there. I think like Nginx service mesh is, is I haven't used it personally, but I'm, I'm sure it, it's very uh, uh, well suited to folks who are already using Nginx for their load balancing and ingress there. Um, so each service mesh kind of has has their own niche and their own their own kind of use cases they're focusing on. Are all of these projects independent views on how the thing should work, or is there a lineage of generation one and people learned from that, and then you have the second generation of tools, and mm-hmm. each generation learned from the failings of the previous? Yeah. I would say it's first started out with this library that lived in each application. Uh, the Netflix one, I remember the name now, was Hystrix. So that's probably the, the first musings of, of, the, of this concept. And then Twitter, they had their own their li- own library, and I think it's called Finagle, um, that was written in Java. And so 
there's some Twitter engineers that left Twitter because they were thinking, okay, this doesn't make sense as a library. It makes sense more as like a standalone data plane and control plane, right? And so th- that's Linkerd. The, those are the, the original Linkerd folks. And they built this proxy called, called Linkerd, but it was written off of Finagle. So it was written in Java. And so it, it was really, really cool actually. And it was like the first time. And if you look for service mesh back at the very beginning, like they were the first people who coined the term service mesh. And so we, we actually tried out their proxy. But one of the one of the problems with the architecture was that this was the exact same time that people were moving to, to Kubernetes. And so what you didn't want to do was run this massive Java proxy uh, that took up, you know, minimum 256 megabytes uh, of RAM, which isn't a lot, but it's a lot when you're running it next to your tiny little Python app that takes like, you know, 20 megabytes of RAM or whatever. So we went from the libraries to this first idea of this proxy that lives outside of your application, but that one wasn't lightweight enough. It was, it, it was too heavy. And so then what we, what we saw is like the evolution of suddenly this, this proxy called Envoy got released out of Lyft. And a lot of service meshes were like, okay, cool. That's a really, really lightweight proxy that we can use because it's written in C++. It takes like a very, very small amounts of memory to, to run. We can run this, uh, you know, next to our application. And so that's where Istio kind of came out as the first service mesh there, where it was the first one using Envoy as its, as its control plane. And it was very specialized to run uh, in Kubernetes. And then what happened after that was that Linkerd, uh, they rewrote their whole service mesh uh, they rewrote a, a brand new proxy that wasn't based on Java; it was based on Rust. And then they rewrote uh, their control plane that, that worked on that proxy, and they and they made it so it worked really well with Kubernetes. And then uh, I think like following that, uh, Console kind of jumped into the mix, where uh, Console had a lot of people that were running services, you know, everywhere. Console knows about where all the services are and everything. And so we had a lot of folks asking asking us, our customers were asking us, "Hey, you know, we're already running." console that knows where all our services are and we're already kind of building homegrown service meshes on top of console because that's where the, the registration information is that's what it knows where all the services are can you provide um, a service mesh to yourselves and so that's kind of how console kind of jumped into the mix there and then i think uh, there's been an explosion from then on of lots of folks looking at uh, into service mesh luke we pretty much covered all my prepared material is there anything you'd like the listeners to know about this topic of service mesh that we haven't covered? Yeah, I think taking off my service mesh engineer hat and putting on my my operations engineer hat, it's really good for folks to, to know about the service mesh and to kind of, you know, you hear it talked about a lot. What I think is important to, to do is understand what it is and what the concept and, and when it makes sense for your application. But also I would say caution folks not to think that they need a service mesh uh, right off the bat. I think depending on how big your organization is and the challenges you're trying to solve it does make sense but i wouldn't say it's something that you absolutely need to have in in your stack and i think that uh, there's a lot of hype behind it that makes folks think that maybe that is something that they absolutely have to have and so if you're if you're running your application and and you're you're doing everything fine and everything's working really well for you i don't think you don't have any that many problems with with routing or metrics or you don't have a really really dynamic environment then i don't think there is a requirement to run a service mesh but I think the, the signals that you should look out for, the flags that you should look out for when you're thinking, oh, maybe it does make sense to bring this in, is when you're doing a big migration somewhere, uh, when you find that your applications are a lot more dynamic uh, because you know you, you have your more developers and they're, they're building more applications, different applications. You're, you're finding you have a lot of complexity between uh, routing to these applications. You find that your operations team is having to 
talk to developers and say, hey, can you make this change to your application to route to this different location? And also, if you find that you're you're bringing in a certificate management and and you're having to like uh, manage all these certificates across all these different applications, I think at that point, then it would then it behooves you to to look into Service Mesh. I'd like to explore that a bit more. Yeah. If you're starting with a very small and simple project, you probably have a monolith. You don't have mm-hmm. microservices. The only case where you need a Service Mesh is where you've already identified that you have a need for microservices. So you're already at a certain level of complexity, microservices being an inherently more complex architecture than the monolith. Would you, if if I said I'm going to adopt microservices, but I'm not going to bring on a service mesh until I need it, then you're looking at either you might end up building a whole bunch of stuff into your applications or libraries and having to rip it out or having, say, unencrypted communication between your microservices from what used to be private to your monolith. Is there really a, a, a migration path to microservices that does not involve a service mesh and then you add it later? Well, I, I think there, there there can be. So for example, say you were running VMs, for example, and you were adding microservices and they, you were running those in VMs and communication between them wasn't encrypted. So now you're looking at moving to maybe a scheduler or something like Kubernetes. I think you can make the argument that the first thing you should do is get those applications running in Kubernetes without a service mesh, because you're also going to be dealing with so much complexity involved in that migration in and of itself with, you know, new deploy pipelines, uh, new ways to operationalize those applications. You have to containerize them and everything. There's so much complexity going on there that what I would say is if you already weren't encrypted between those applications, that moving them into Kubernetes without that encryption, you're not loosening your security. And then, and then it might not make sense to bring in a service mesh right away. You should probably kind of get that operationalized working well first before you bring in a service mesh. Now, if you are in the instance where you already had, you know, encryption between the services and you're looking at building like a hundred more of them over the next year, then absolutely. There doesn't seem to be like a, a real path between the two of them. You kind of do have to bring in a, in a service mesh to solve that problem. You can do it by yourself with statically provisioned certificates, but you're right. Like at that point, it doesn't seem to make as so much sense. To wrap things up, Luke, where can listeners find you on the internet? Yeah, they can find me on Twitter at L-K-Y-S-O-W, at L-K-Y-S-O, um, and also on GitHub, the same handle. And then they can also, uh, you know, we're, I'm working on console, so they can see us over at console.io, where the service mesh that I work on is uh, situated. Luke, thank you so much for speaking to Kodish. Thank you very much. It was great to be here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Kodish podcast. Kodish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Kodish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.